Welcome to our fourth Universalist service video. My name is the Reverend Skylar Vogel, and I'm the senior minister here at our congregation, and I'm so grateful for you joining us. What follows is uh, selections from our May 23rd, 2021 worship service, themed around the eighth principle. In this video, you'll hear our reading, you'll hear my reflection, and after that, you'll hear a conversation between myself and our director of religious education, Amber Kelly. We'll go deeper into the service theme uh, and why we should, as a congregation, add the eighth principle to our already seven principles. You're invited to check out our video and audio podcasts every single week, posted on our website, on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and on your favorite podcast streaming site. If you like what you see, uh, please like our stuff, give a positive review, comment, share, subscribe to help share and spread the fourth universalist message. Thanks again for watching. We begin with our reading. reading this morning is by Ibram X. Kendi, author of the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, a New York Times bestseller that sold out last year during the Black Lives Matter protests. These are his words about what it means to do meaningful racial justice work. And I quote, the opposite of racist isn't not racist, it's anti-racist. What's the difference? One endorses either the idea of racial hierarchy as a racist or racial equality as an anti-racist. One either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the roots of problems in power and politics as an anti-racist. One either allows racial inequalities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequalities as an anti-racist. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. Last week, I attended an online community board meeting. Now, don't let the excitement of hearing about a community board meeting overwhelm you. Sometimes it's a lot of committee reports and procedures and long-winded discussion. But this one was different. The meeting was about the statue of Theodore Roosevelt in front of the American Museum of Natural History, two blocks north of the congregation. Now, this is not just any statue. It's a statue that has been a lightning rod of controversy. In the course of the last few years, it has both been sprayed in fake blood by liberal activists and has also been the site of a spirited mega rally in its defense. For many in the community, the problem with the statue is that it shows Roosevelt sitting on a horse, looking bold and powerful and triumphant, while two other men, one indigenous and one African, walk beside him, almost holding him up, 
below. To many indigenous and black activists, the statue shows a clear, explicit racial hierarchy. The white Roosevelt towering over the non-white others. The problem comes into focus when one considers the museum prides itself on educating the city's diverse population of children who walk by and see that statue as the first thing that they see. The community board hearing meeting was the museum's a chance to propose an alternative. They presented the history of the statue, the problematic issues with the statue and how the city and the museum and the Roosevelt family had agreed to fix it and ultimately to remove it. As I listened there, I was heartened as were many others to hear the museum's strong desire to remove it. I know that not everyone in the community feels this way. You can uh, read the New York Times uh, comments and the local West Side Reg newspapers comments and obviously the mega rally shows that not everyone agrees it should be removed. But that night, some people did share those concerns. Why not remove the indigenous and African fingers, figures and just, just leave Roosevelt there? Several folks asked, not understanding that the problem wasn't just the hierarchy of the figures, but Roosevelt himself. After all, this was a man who once said this about indigenous people. I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indian is a dead Indian, but I believe nine out of 10 are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely in the case of the 10th. Now it is common for American school children to learn to love Roosevelt, but if you look closely, it's more clear that really only certain Americans love Roosevelt. Perhaps if you are indigenous or a person of color, he is less heroic. Now, when I was attending that meeting, I was really looking forward to hearing what the museum was going to do to replace the statue. I knew what I would do, maybe something like each year displaying a different sculpture after getting rid of Roosevelt's, that statue, replacing it with an annual statue made maybe by an indigenous person or a person of color that would support BIPOC artists. It would be a clear signal to all the black and brown school children showing that this is a community that cares about them, right? This museum is centering them. And it might be a bold reframing of who should be at the center of our American story. A story that I believe both as a minister, but also as a former history teacher a story that is fundamentally about the pursuit of justice, equality, and freedom, not deifying people from the past. So I admit that when the museum shared its plan, I was a bit disappointed. The statue is going to be replaced with basically nothing. It felt like a missed opportunity, a chance not to just remove the racism, but put in its place something that is explicitly anti-racist, something that is not reactive but proactive in promoting equality and justice and liberation. As I was sitting there processing my feelings about something I would have to walk by every time I came to church, and many of you would as well, I couldn't help but think that our congregation faces a similar crossroads when we think about adopting the eighth principle. It feels like we have a similar choice between being simply not racist 
and being explicitly anti-racist. The seven principles that we have already, that we've had for 30 years are definitely not racist. They are clear about the inherent worth and dignity of every person. They are articulate about our values of justice, equity, and compassion for all. They are the kind of values that would lead an institution to remove a racially problematic statue or lead a congregation to celebrate MLK Day or welcome people of color and talk about the power of diversity. But what we've also found is that the seven principles let Unitarian Universalists stop right there and feel totally fine doing so. Being a not racist institution focuses on removing a problem that is racist. Often that problem is explicit because it's easier. Implicit racism alternatively is harder to change, easier to ignore, and clever minds, sometimes disingenuous, sometimes well-meaning, can easily explain it away. But an anti-racist institution not only seeks to eliminate racism, but to dismantle systems that support it and replace them with something better. Anti-racist institutions understand that being not racist is not forceful enough to truly confront racism. Racism is active, not racism is passive. Racism will overwhelm that passivity because it is driven, entrenched, and woven within our structures and imaginations. The problem with the Roosevelt statue was not just a statue, but with the forces that allowed it to stay there for so long, forces that will no doubt remain unless it becomes more anti-racist explicitly. Too often, we confuse the absence of overt racism with the presence of justice. When we ask you to support the eighth principle, we do so because Unitarian Universalism falls into that same very trap of believing that being free from overt racism means believing we are free from all racism. But true freedom from oppression of all kinds requires much more intensive, thoughtful, and systemic change. Now, how do we know that that's true? Well, all we have to do is listen to the people of color and others on the margins of our communities and of Unitarian Universalism. We hear it from members of our congregation who have shared openly and repeatedly how difficult it is to be a Unitarian Universalist of color. We see it how people of marginalized identities are tokenized in our faith for the diversity optics that they offer. And yet time and time again are offered little power or leadership, or when they do challenge the status quo, are accused of being too radical. We hear how people's lived experiences of oppression are questioned and challenged and doubted by people who have no experience or training or expertise to do it. And we see it in how fragile the support for justice work is among so many privileged Unitarian Universalists and how many feel justified abandoning a cause or revoking their support because they don't like the wording or phrasing of something, which we've heard about with the eighth principle, or how some are put off by a speaker's tone or language, or are afraid that some anti-racist action will be alienating or divisive. 
which is all to say that they center the concerns of those who will be alienated, often who are white and privileged, over those who are saying that there's a problem here and we need to address it head on to lessen the suffering of those yearning to be heard. We have found since the 30 years of these principles being adopted that they are not enough to address these problems. They allow a theological opening for toxic and abusive theologies that let this racism, sometimes subtle, sometimes not, persist. In many ways, these seven principles have become harmful alone because they allow you use a privilege to believe they are anti-racist when what they really are is just not explicitly racist. We need the eighth principle because it forces our faith to confront oppression head on. To not simply purge our face of obvious racism and oppression, but to take the offensive, to center the work of collective liberation as core to our faith. I think this is so pivotal. When we think about the future of liberal religion, the very project that we're all concerned about, this is kind of it. It's about understanding how systems and structures and individuals confront oppression that keep us all from being free and whole and happy. We have to work to dismantle those systems and then work to rebuild so they serve us all. Now, I know that adding an eighth principle is a big deal. Change is hard and difficult and scary. But as we think about this, I ask that you remember a few things. Remember that our principles are not set in stone. They are not the Ten Commandments written on Mount Sinai. They were never intended to be unchanging. Our tradition of liberal religion is all about continued revelation and progress and growth and change. That's what we're about. We're always moving. God is always still speaking. I want you to remember that the eighth principle was written by black and brown Unitarian Universalists with a tremendous amount of care and intentionality, and that it would be hurtful for those of us with privileged identities to think we know better about racism and oppression and the wording and the phrasing that they used to create this principle. I ask that you remember that many people of color in our congregation and others on the margins believe deeply that the eighth principle is something we must affirm. Think about how it would feel if our congregation didn't affirm that we were striving to be anti-racist. I know several people of color had said this wouldn't feel like a home to them anymore. Imagine the impact that that would have. Finally, remember that eighth principle work can't just be relegated to social justice work. It's not political. It is deeply personal spiritual work. The profound wisdom of our faith is inseparable from this. We grow spiritually as we consider how our liberation is tied, us, tied up in the liberation of all people. Liberation out there and in here. It is religious work. When we meet on June 13th to vote to affirm the eighth principle, I hope we vote in favor. 
We cannot simply be an explicitly not racist, not oppressive congregation. We need to be explicitly anti-racist and anti-oppression. Otherwise, we will stay the same. Our people of color and other marginalized identities will continue to suffer as they have been, and our institution will remain unchanged. I know that's not who we are. We should be the congregation where with everything we do, we ask ourselves, how is this impacting those who are vulnerable? How is this impacting those who are historically and presently marginalized? Those without power in our world and our congregation, how is it impacting them? Those people who feel uncomfortable or unsafe or are hurting. These are the questions that we must ask. These are the questions that the eight principles insist that we ask. These are anti-racist and anti-oppressive questions. They are questions that will free us, liberate us, make us whole, no matter who we are. These are the sacred, worthy questions, worthy of the great promise of Unitarian Universalism and worthy of our congregation. If we, all of us, are brave enough to accept the eighth principle challenge. May we do so together. Amen. Skylar, it's really great to sit down and talk with you about this really important topic today. I'm glad to. Uh, it's exciting to think about our congregation adopting the eighth principle, moving forward in our journey towards racial, racial justice. Uh, and uh, I hope that all of you enjoyed uh, the service. Yes, I, I think that it was really meaningful and I think it was really good for us to, to take this nice, uh, you know, to borrow my own terminology from other, other settings, a, a deeper dive into the eighth principle as we uh, prepare for this vote to affirm it. No. Yeah, uh, definitely come second Sunday in June if you are a member to vote. If you're not a member, you can still come and add your voice to the, uh, to the, the crowd uh, pushing us to be um, our best selves as a congregation, which I think means adopting this principle uh, and following the, uh, the urging of uh, uh, people of color and other marginalized folks in the Unitarian Universalist Association. I think it's important for us to be listening and doing, doing this important work. I would like to make a quick editorial note that if you hear any sort of humming in the background, we are headed towards the summer and uh, both Skylar and I do need some fans to make sure that we're not overheating during our work. Uh, so just a quick editorial note going forward for the summer. That was uh, 90 degrees yesterday here in New York. Gosh, yes, but we will not get distracted by the weather. Uh, instead, I'd like to focus on um, the distinction you made. And I think, I, I think it's a really good one because a lot of people, you know, I mean, I grew up in a setting where I would have been like, yeah, I'm, I'm not racist, but it's really important for us to move from being, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not racist to how do we actively make sure that these systems aren't being perpetuated. And I think that was a really great distinction that you made. Do you want to touch a little bit more on that? Yeah, I think the key is to recognize that merely the signs of eliminating the signs of overt racism, which is not something that we've even done, right? You talk to people of color, you talk to folks of other marginalized identities at Fourth Universalist um, and in the UUA in general, um, or in British American society, right? Uh, uh, there's plenty of signs of overt racism. Uh, we're still not a not racist society, right? Uh, or a not overt racist society. 
Um, but I think the goal of any, any, any organization that's really trying to do its best, right, is to not simply eliminate those outward signs, but to go at the core, uh, the core systems and structures that um, perpetuate um, even uh, sort of subversive racism, right? Racism that's under, under the surface uh, that, uh, that you can't point to easily and say, well, that's a racist thing, but, but you still may notice signs of, uh, you know, that uh, there's still a lot of racial imbalances that, um, you know, people of color feel like uh, they're not at home in the space in the same way that maybe white people do. Um, that power is shared differently. Um, that certain people are hired uh, and not others. Um, and it's not just about race, obviously, it's about, it's about a lot of different identities that people carry. Um, and so this anti-racism focus, anti-oppressive focus is about going that extra mile. It's about interrogating ourselves deeply that merely the absence of an appearance of racism is not, that's not the end work, right? That's not, that isn't our final form. The final form is to, um, to push even further past where we think we need to go uh, and then create actively anti-racist, which really it means that our focus is on justice, right? And so when I talk about the Museum of Natural History, not just getting rid of the racist statue, right? But reflecting on how can we be actually in the fight to resist this work going forward, right? So um, the idea of promoting uh, indigenous artists, right? Uh, and making sure that, you know, their work so that when black and brown kids walk there as they do right and they go to the museum they're they're not just seeing oh there's no racism here they're seeing like oh this is a place that really affirms our our humanness our identities that understands the push for liberation uh, and that's what fourth you i think needs to do and what the eighth principle is about i think one of the things that it strikes me as is that it's also kind of redefining the default. And let me, let me elaborate a little bit on that. Like, uh, you know, I think, and especially, you know, churches are often some of the most segregated times in America. I believe it was Martin Luther King that said that. Uh, and I have observed it to be true as somebody who does church work. Uh, but, you know, I think a lot of us in our different communities and our different settings and work, you know, the, the default uh, in the sense of being not racist, but there's still like the defaults that you assume that, um, the people that might be interested are going to be white. So you make a lot. You make a lot of cultural assumptions about the race, the class, the background of maybe like prospective members or who's going to be interested in your community. And I think it's really about rethinking who we are. This beloved community idea that we we imagine that we can be this place where just ton like everybody can feel welcome and that um, we're doing this work actively and not just that we're saying okay, everybody come here because. You know, I know um, there's a lot of uh, churches that may be more on what would be known as the right wing um, that will put on their website, hey, everybody's welcome here, but you get there and you aren't necessarily welcome. And how do we, yeah, we have to live out that welcome. It's, it's, and that takes being actively working against these forms of oppression. That's right. It takes a generosity of spirit to recognize that um, cultures of supremacy, uh, not always intentional ones, Right, that they make explicit judgments and that they explicitly welcome or don't welcome. So what we want to be is a place, as a congregation, that uh, that recognizes that just the way that things have been is based on who has been there and who has had power, and that that it doesn't connect to right or wrong necessarily. Um, and so you see in a lot of spaces, 
you know, more, maybe more conservative religious spaces where uh, you're welcome and that you may be welcome, whatever that means exactly, but it's welcome so long as you conform to whatever the dominant cultural or ideological paradigm is. And so, um, you know, the, in America, oftentimes, particularly if it's a, it's a white space that that comes with all these sort of assumptions around your racial identity around, you know, being straight and cisgendered, uh, often uh, around sort of certain form of masculinity uh, and femininity that uh, is very strictly defined. Uh, and so I think an anti-racist, anti-oppressive community breaks that stuff down and says, it's not just you're, you're not welcome if you just conform to this. You're welcome uh, because of who you are. And in fact, you're, you're, whatever diversity or, or identities you bring are actually going to enrich the community. Uh, and, uh, and we hope that this is a place where everyone can kind of find their, their journey towards truth and love and, and, and meaning together. Um, and that's easier said than done, because if you're really going to do that, that means sharing power, right? And being willing to change traditions um, that are based on that sort of more uh, normative approach that so many UU spaces have. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think one of the other things that really hit me, and we, I, I discussed a little bit in my justice moment, is this idea that comes out of the principle of that it's accountably uh, dismantle racism and other oppressions, that there's this uh, accountability to it. What are, I know we've had some conversations, and uh, I thought it'd be a great moment to kind of share a little bit about what we're thinking uh, in terms of how we be accountable in this work. Yeah. Uh, it's a good question, really important. And that line is very intentional in the eighth principle um, because it's one thing to say something, it's another to build structures that, um, that ensure that it is, right? Um, the great danger, I think, of any, any anti-oppressive work is to assume the good intentions of the people in the room. Um, that's a nice thing to do. And you hope that you have people who generally want to do the right thing. But where the real injustice happens is when there aren't structures to ensure that people do the right thing. So, you know, if a, if a system uh, allows people to abuse it uh, because you get someone who is manipulative, who's abusive, who's, who has, uh, you know, certain uh, oppressive tendencies, it's not safe really because it just assumes that people are good and people are not always good or they may have, they may have confusions about what's right. Um, and so accountability means really looking at the policies and practices of the congregation. You know, do we have anti-racist policies uh, for hiring? Uh, and not just like not racist policies, but explicitly looking at um, how do we ensure that? Um, do, we, do we protect our staff, um, you know, who are BIPOC uh, or other marginalized identities, right? So that if they come into conflict with a member of the congregation or maybe their supervisor, that there are meaningful account of structures that protect them, right? Uh, uh, because we know that that, uh, that people, um, you know, get abused. Um, even, I mean, even sort of the basic gender binary of men and women, right? We know that women are paid a lot less, that they're often overlooked for promotions. Um, you know, what are our systems to ensure that? So one of those systems that we are going to be creating, assuming that the eighth principle passes, is a, uh, a task force, a team, uh, doesn't have a name yet exactly, but, uh, but dedicated to uh, pushing our congregation uh, in the direction of the eighth principle, uh, ensuring that, um, you know, important and sometimes hard questions get asked, uh, ensuring that uh, they have access to the highest levels of leadership and power in the congregation, um, and that they are, uh, and those, the people on that team um, represent the, the full diversity of the congregation um, and are given um, power to, uh, you know, make 
meaningful change happen. Um, that's not to say that that team is going to be able to, uh, you know, make instant change. It's going to be a congregational effort, you know, and that will be all of us uh, responsible for doing that. But um, having a prophetic voice there will be really important and having a, a group that can, if necessary, push us to be better than we are um, will uh, go a long way. Would you like to say any more, Ember? I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I, gosh, I think you said that well. And I think, you know, it's, it's important. Um, obviously, in the, the justice moment, I did talk a little bit about education, which is also, I think, a really important part of this uh, effort of being accountable is that we need to be consistently laying out new curriculum that meets these standards that isn't just, okay, here's, here's something that uh, is nice, but like that helps train us, helps train these muscles of this anti-oppression work. I think that's really important. Um, and if you're interested in learning more, uh, Skylar and I have had a couple other, we've had at least one other recorded conversation. And we've also hosted quite a few events around the Eighth Principle and made a bunch of different resources. You can find those on our website. If you click under the education tab, the first link should say Eighth Principle. Don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure it's fourthu.org slash eighth. Um, but I, I might be wrong about that. And I'll put that link in the description. Is that the number well. or spelled out? I think it's the number, but I will put it in the description to make sure that, uh, that I've included it. Um, see below. See below. <laughs> but Reverend Schuyler, thanks once again for another opportunity for you and I to sit down and think about the eighth principle together. Thank you, Ember. I really appreciate it. And everyone who's listening, thank you for uh, your, your, your positive regard for all these complex issues. I hope to see you on June 13th uh, after the service, right after 12 o'clock. Um, to vote um, yes on the eighth principle. Please, please make sure you're there. We need quorum from members. Uh, we need support from non-members as well. So thank you.